Hello and welcome back to another episode of Charting Queer Health, a podcast centered at the intersection of queer culture, healthcare, and research. As always, I'm your host, Matt Lesky, and I have the incredible opportunity to sit down with various leaders from across our organization and across our community to talk with them and amplify their voices and expertise and advance the conversation surrounding queer healthcare. Today's episode is in honor of World AIDS Day, which we observe every year on December 1st. Now, HIV and AIDS are conditions that have been around for a while, and as a result, uh, there is lots of information online regarding the um, practical medical ramifications of these conditions. If you are unfamiliar with either HIV or AIDS and need need more information, you can absolutely go online to www.howardbrown.org to kind of get the nuts and bolts. But today's episode is more about the lived experience and the social ramifications of HIV and AIDS. I am joined by a, a community member and a friend of Howard Brown, Kevin Bierman to talk about their lived experience with HIV. Kevin, thank you for uh, lending us your time to come chat. Can you just tell us a little bit of, a little bit about yourself uh, and your pronouns, please? Yeah, um, my name is Kevin Bierman. My pronouns are he, they. Um, I don't work at Howard Brown, but I am on the CAB, the Community Advisory Board. Oh, perfect. So for the North Side. Um, outside of that, I am the Director of Marketing for Uniting Voices Chicago, which is formerly Chicago Children's Choir. And I have been living with HIV since about this time in 2018. Okay. About four years now. Wonderful. Um, Side note, I'll have to talk to I'm a former choir nerd, so I really love that. Oh, yeah. Um, Not former, I still am a choir nerd. Um, (laughs) Yeah, so so you ended with the, the topic at hand there. We're talking about HIV, which I have to, like, put a, not a disclaimer, but, like, in putting together this episode... And especially within the context of like working for Howard Brown, HIV was what, you know, Howard, the, the HIV epidemic back in the 70s and 80s was what Howard Brown was born out of. And so this topic feels like something that is, is never not important, but we have also talked about a lot. And so it's hard to know how to approach it, what discussions we've had, what discussions we need to be having. Things like that. And so I, when considering this episode, I was like, I, we have a lot of wonderful healthcare professionals within Howard Brown that have done a lifetime of work for HIV. And while I do love them and am immensely, you know, full of gratitude for all the work they've done, I feel like sometimes it's best to, to dive into, you know, healthcare topics through lived experiences because, I find and I have found in previous episodes talking about whether it's diabetes was our last episode or really any other health condition that you, you know, manage or live with. Um, you only get so much of a picture by talking to the people that care for those people. Sometimes it's best to go to the people themselves. So that's why I invited you here. Uh, and I am so grateful that you are here. And in tandem with that first statement, I want to say like I um, it was like even intro like introducing you and talking about like we're talking to somebody who's living with HIV like it feels I don't know I don't feel is are you I'm gonna do my best to articulate this in a solid way but it just feels a little bit like we're you know it feels is it does it feel a little tokenizing? do you ever get that sometimes like we're gonna talk to the one person that because you <laughs> you've done this for Howard Brown before in a different capacity yeah I have. and I don't know if you've done it for other organizations, but I, I, I hate that we are discussing with you based on one factor of your life and not like, 
Oh, no, it makes sense. I mean, it's a podcast for World AIDS Day, so it makes sense yeah. to talk to someone with HIV. And maybe this is, like, misplaced, like, emotions or something. I don't know. But it just, I, 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 I hear so much about, like, you know, and, that, and that's why we choose our language so specifically, like, a person living with HIV, not, you know, HIV positive, so we, we yeah. don't ascribe people as a diagnosis. It's, you know, just a small factor of you. But... So some in in some way I was formulating this episode and was like, is this like furthering that? That like we're like wanting to talk to you based only on, you know, one part of you. But I guess that's kind of the I don't I don't know. I, this is a tangent, <laughs> but I just wanted you to know where my head was at going into this of like, okay, so you know basically I wanna Make sure that you feel validated. And yeah, well, let me ease your fears. I don't mind talking about it. I mean, it's not the only thing in my life, yeah. but uh, it's also an important part of my life. It's an important part of my relationship with Howard Brown. It's an important part of my relationship with like other people. It comes up all the time. It's funny that you mentioned diabetes is the episode you did last week, because when I was diagnosed and I was diagnosed at Howard Brown by a provider who's no longer here, um, um, Dr. Duffy, and I can't remember her first name for the life of me right now, but... Um, she mentioned to me whenever I was going through my early phases of treatment that this would end up being probably easier to live with than diabetes, which at the time actually like meant something. I have a cousin who has a type one diabetes and she's lived with it since she was 13. And I see how little it like, it's one of those things. It's a daily part of her life. So to like talk to my yeah. cousin about it, like, or to be around my cousin, to be part of her life in any way that's meaningful, it's just going to come up at some point. Yeah. So, and it's, it's the thing to be curious about. Like I've asked, I mean, I, you know, I've talked to her about that. She's got this like new little like automatic insulin thing oh, yeah. that like pumps it in, you know, like, which is all to say, like, it makes sense to be curious about it. It's a, you know, like it's a thing that's going to come up no matter what. Okay. Thank you for easing my mind. And, and like I said, <laughs> before we started recording, like it's my job to ask dumb questions. And in this case, like make dumb statements um, where like, yeah, it is a it is a part of your life. So talking about it isn't like, you know, inappropriate or belittling. Uh, but I just want to make sure and express to the people listening that when when we have people on the podcast, we do try to like make sure that they feel like they're not being like used or like tokenized or like tell us all these things and like okay, see ya. Like I don't know. So thank you for that. Um, so let's rewind and get to like our original point of questioning, which was, so you said your first diagnosed in 2018. Yeah. October 24th, 2018. Okay. So uh, for what was, what was the process of getting di diagnosed? Like, was it like, uh, you know, you did a routine test and it came back or you thought, or you knew, or you were told to go get tested or how did it all shake out? I had an experience that was both when I, so when I was diagnosed with HIV, I had an experience that was both like um, typical and, and goofy at the same time, which is probably true of all people. So um, I started seroconversion. So what happened was I just I had um, a terribly sore throat that was like really swollen, and then I started getting like really intense body aches and a really high fever, like 104 degree fever, um, that wouldn't go away. And so I came to Howard Brown because at the time I didn't have um, health insurance. This was a place that I could get like healthcare at a reasonable um, level, whatever. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so I came to Howard Brown and, um, I thought it was the strep, which made sense. You know, like it's like a mild fever, sore throat, terribly. I mean, it was the worst sore throat I've ever had. Mm -hmm. Like I couldn't drink water. Um, so they did a strep test and that came back negative. Then they did a flu test and that came back negative. And the doctor was like, can we, so, like the doctor was like, can we do an HIV test? And I would like, I hate needles. It's actually uh. like, the, it's like the worst thing that had, like the worst part about living with this is I hate needles. <laughs> I don't like, like, I don't like blood. Mm -hmm. um, and so I like, didn't want to do that because I had just gotten tested two and a half weeks before. And um, I had always 
like HIV wasn't new to me. My life, like I had, it was part of my like undergraduate research and like my graduate research. So it, like um, I've always opted for the fourth generation blood test when I go get tested yeah. just to have the most accuracy, mm -hmm. the shortest time window so I can know. And I had just been tested two weeks before, like not two, three weeks, three, three and a half weeks before. Mm -hmm. And um, it had come back negative. So I was like, and I hadn't like had any exposure that I knew of mm -hmm. in between um, when I was tested and when I started seroconverting, which I didn't know that's what was going on at the time. I reluctantly let her run that test um, because I just thought it was absurd. But I also like, I, like I, I trust medical professionals. So if they, you know, since they were recommending it, and um, I wasn't getting results back, but I was still terribly, terribly like sick. Like mm -hmm. I still had a terrible fever. So I called the nurse line one night. The I don't, I don't know, I don't know what the term here is. Howard Brown is, but it was like after hours. I yeah. call in, and there's like that provider on duty. Yeah. I don't know what you guys call that phone number. I'm honestly not sure. The hotline. We're just going to call it the yeah, hotline. Yeah, I'm yeah, sure hotline, someone can yeah, correct sure. this at some point. Yeah. It's some vague, like something like a hotline. Um, I, I'm only wondering. I don't know, even know if that's in existence anymore. But it yeah. might not be. This is before COVID. This was before. Um, this is before it seemed that healthcare could have all these remote and like online yeah. virtual. I think with COVID they switched it to if you have an emergency call nine one one because yeah. people were trying to call us for all things related to COVID and so lines were swamped and so they were just like we can't stay open for that but anyways which is you know which makes total sense at the time i was really grateful for this so i called and uh, i also finally remembered um dr duffy's first name katie so the person oh, who yeah. was on um call that night was katie duffy and um i told her i was like you know i like my fever keeps persisting they keep telling me to like so it'd been like almost it had been almost a week oh wow since I'd run the test so it'd been almost a week since i run the test and it had been um almost two weeks since this all started you know um and when I called, I was kind of like, I was like concerned because like my fever wasn't going away and everything hurt really badly. And she um, told me on the phone, she's like, oh, it like looks like your test is inconclusive. Um, like we don't have results from that. I realized later that like it was clearly positive mm. and she just like wasn't going to tell me that over the phone. She was like, oh, it's inconclusive. And so like, um, let me see what's going on with that. She called me the next morning. I was on the train going into work and she was like, hey, can you come into the clinic later this afternoon? Um, I, we're going to send you like your um, samples out to be retested or run the test again or whatever it is that they do. Um, I don't want to say she said send it out. She said, we're going to do this again. Yeah. Why don't you come in and take a rapid test so we can give you some peace of mind so you're not like worried for until those get back yeah. which was just her kind way of like getting me to come into the clinic mm -hmm. so we because like, I was gonna I, say I don't think you can retest samples after they've been tested no. once generally it uses up what you gave was, for the test so yeah no she was just in a position where she had like a person who was like very clearly HIV positive in the middle of seroconversion mm -hmm. who she just wasn't gonna tell over the phone yeah. which is like wonderful great, great yeah um so I had gone in to get a rapid like a rapid test and like god bless the nurse who did it like i think was in on this but like made one like small little mistake which there wasn't really much time to like deal with like they did the little finger prick and did the thing where they were going to do the 15 minute rapid test but mm -hmm. on her way out the door after she like disposed of the little like plastic and wrapper stuff into the trash um she accidentally threw the test away immediately which i was like wait why did she throw that test out i had a friend with me who oh, like, so it was for show yeah, yeah, yeah. And oh, within gosh. 30 seconds, me realizing that Duffy was in the room and, like, was just, like, very, like, mm. she just blurted it out. Well, she didn't blurt it out. She very tactfully. She led with that, yeah. Yeah, she very tactfully, like, just, like, it's went straight into the situation because there's nothing to do at that yeah. point. Oh, but, no. The fact that you clocked the throwing the test in the trash, like, for all their best efforts of trying to, like, ease you into this, you're like, no, something's wrong. <laughs> That's, I mean... I, I love that they did that, that they tried to, like, ease your mind a little bit, but... I mean, 
<laughs> yeah, it was compassionate. It was super it was. compassionate. Looking back, I'm glad it was. It's it's a funny part of the story. So so what's going? So okay, first off, seroconversion. Um, I just to give a definition for people that uh, are listening that don't know seroconversion. I googled, which I don't know this off the top of my head. Um, is when your body is uh has the HIV virus in it and is producing antibodies to try to combat it. Mm-hmm. Um, so the antibodies, like when you get sick with anything else, that's what gives you the fever, the aches. It's just ten times worse because your body doesn't know how to and can't really deal with with right. the HIV virus. So um, you're going through that process. Um, so not only are you physically ill, but you are faced with the, at that point, really high possibility, um, that your test is getting, or was positive. So what, what thoughts do you remember having it? Like what your conscious thoughts were when like you saw the test being thrown away or when, you know, you're being called back in like, well, luckily, um, so the test being between the test being thrown away and, and Dr. Jeffy telling me that I was positive, there was only maybe like 30 seconds of time. So I didn't have like a whole okay. lot of time to be like, what was, it was more whenever I called her the night before and mm-hmm. she was like, oh, it's inconclusive. That's when I started getting worried because I had, I had had, it happens like inconclusive test results are not super uncommon and they're nothing to be concerned about. Um, I'd had them before. Yeah. What I hadn't had before was inconclusive results and also all of the symptoms that I was experiencing at that same time. Yeah. Like I had had inconclusive test results, but I had always felt fine when I got those back. So um, this time felt different. It was one of those things where I knew before I knew, mm. you know, it was like pretty like looking back, like I had been gripped with a lot of fear and anxiety after that phone call in spite of the fact that she, Dr. Duffy did her level best and a great job of trying to make it not a problem. Yeah. Um, but what went through my head at that time is that I just didn't want H. I didn't want to have HIV. It was just like when I like between that phone call ending and the next day when I found out for sure, I just like was in my head like I really don't want to deal with this. You know. Yeah. Like, this would just be like a miserable experience. Like, yeah. I just don't want HIV. I mean, that yeah that that seems like a a given. Nobody gets that phone call. <laughs> it's like wow well, okay like obviously. <laughs> You know, there's, there's that. And you cling to, you cling to every possibility, like you cling in those moments, that's one of those moments where nothing is conclusive. And so you cling to all the possibilities that it's not like that, you know, like it's maybe some goofy other thing. It's, you know, there's an explanation. I called a friend of mine who's also queer and was like, oh no, this all the time. You're fine. This happens all the time. No need to worry. Yeah. Cause I've had like blood tests for, you know cholesterol come back and like inconclusive or the test failed or whatever and I've had to go in twice so I feel like that stuff does happen um but yeah if it's uh inconclusive related to that it does put up some red flags I would feel like and also my test wasn't inconclusive my oh, test yeah, was yeah, very yeah. clearly positive it's just this was a person who to was to your like, knowledge it was inconclusive. yeah in those moments but this is a doctor telling me you know like this is doctor just like not wanting to tell me over the phone yeah at like 12 p.m on a Wednesday night fair I have fair. HIV um I it your your story is interesting because I feel like the um you know not stereotype but like oftentimes when people get diagnosed it's you know i had never been tested i wasn't on prep or or all of these things and you're like no i was tested like three weeks prior um so it it's a good reminder that you know diagnoses and and exposures can happen regardless of how often you're getting tested um and and even if you know you are a well-educated person that you know knows how this happens and everything like it's not a a condition that solely affects people that don't have access to resources and things like it's it it does affect everybody because sometimes i feel like hiv is pushed on certain communities it's like we need to focus on these communities which is true uh they 
absolutely do need our attention, but it is a condition that can and does affect everybody regardless of, you know, your socioeconomic status, your, your gender expression, your sexuality, all sorts of things. So I wanted to remind people of that because, um, especially recently, I feel like I saw a headline that was like HIV is now affecting more straight people than self-identified queer people. But maybe that was clickbait. I don't know. I don't. I didn't see that, but it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. There's a. I mean, there's an unhelpful narrative that, and this has been unhelpful since like the days of like since the early days of the HIV pandemic, where certain people, it, where it, it was never the predominant streak running amongst like heterosexual like. Like folks, I don't know what I was trying to get at there, the yeah. but folks who like are heterosexual, it wasn't like the predominant streak there. But there were folks who weren't explicitly queer or even like gay who this was affecting because of like other conditions, like the fact that they were, um, like oh my god, I'm, I'm drawing the thing. Where, oh, um, hemophilia. Yeah, like, hemophilia. That's what it was. Hemophilia yeah. not to the same degree, and it was also affecting. You know, like it, this is also one of the places early in the HIV pan, pan, um, uh, pandemic in the early days. This is also one of those places where race played a huge like part that wasn't always talked about explicitly, which is that there were um, a lot of different communities in New York City, especially that were just like low income and were um, using needles, yeah, like intravenous um, mm -hmm. drug users who weren't queer in any way, shape or form necessarily, who were also being infected by this and who were also often left out of like the sort of community aid networks that mm -hmm. popped up um, by fact of that, you know? So it's good yeah. to remind people that it doesn't only affect self-identified queer and gay people. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's an important reminder for for people listening. Do you get like annoyed or like frustrated rehashing this for people? How no, you... I literally love talking about it. Okay, I'm mad privileged, so I have this like opportunity to be like super. I'm like open about it at my job. Like I'm the uh -huh. person who like I, I enjoy that people and it's important because people don't understand it. So. I'll crack a joke in like in an appropriate setting. Like maybe there's a meeting and a casual conversation is happening. And sometimes it's just like, I'm a little, like, I'll make it like a little risque, but you know, mm -hmm. joke, but it's important because it, people need to understand how much this isn't a thing that's like, that's destroying my life or that is prohibitive to me thriving in my world. You know, it's, yeah. it's like super manageable. Okay. It's an incredibly manageable condition. Yeah. And so I like telling people about it. I like rehashing the details because I like educating people about it. I like talking about it in casual conversations. Mm -hmm. I like answering people's like morbid questions. I like like correcting their like misunderstood like misunderstandings about things. Yeah. So I don't mind rehashing it. I think it's important for people to know the nuances of people's experience so that they can be armed with information. I love that. And that's why you're the perfect guest for this episode. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, because I, I can see it like we talked about the comparison to other conditions that you manage or live with and people don't really have an issue talking about those but for some reason HIV because sexually transmitted mostly um it it becomes a taboo subject and something to dance around and that stigma like we've talked about in a plethora of episodes that stigma and fear doesn't do anything to advance people's health outcomes or um to educate the community it only uh does the opposite so um i appreciate your attitude towards that of like no i will bring it up and we can talk about it and it's normalized because it should be um so yeah that that's a, a i think a great outlook to have although do you know or do you know of people that it's that's not the case for that don't want to share things and why do you think that might be 
for sure. I mean, it makes sense not to want to speak about it. It is like a, it is kind of personal business. And also it's not like my, you know, like for instance, I'll like lean on the example of my cousin who has diabetes. It's not like she goes around talking about it all the time, right. you know, like maybe you're around like, and especially now that she has all these, like there's such amazing tools for making it like automated. You don't have to like, you know, she doesn't stop to like check her insulin levels mm-hmm. anymore. Right. So maybe in the days of having to do that, it might come up, but it's not like she's walking around advertising it, yeah. you know, and it's not like people really ask that many questions about it. Yeah. You know, people, there's, there's a morbid curiosity at HIV that's rooted much more like rooted almost in no way to the medical experience of HIV, but the social yeah. narrative that exists around it. It's yeah. the history of HIV that makes it such a fascinating subject for yeah. people, you know? Yeah. Diabetes was never, um, there was no like media narrative surrounding diabetes necessarily. I, a little bit in the, you know, depending on what type you have, whether, and we talked about this on the episode, the, you know, you diabetes on a plate narrative and you know, you're eating in a certain way. And, and if you do have type two, then it's because X, Y, Z. But other than that, there's not, yeah. Like you said, the morbid curiosity of, of people wanting to know. And, and like, to that point, do you, do you feel like people feel entitled to like explanations or like clarity regarding you living with HIV? Because sometimes within the queer community and people even do it with like, like I have had straight people do it to me just regarding being gay of like, so like, tell me like, when did you come out? Like when you like, and all of the, and they're, they're well intentioned generally. Um, but they feel like they're owed, uh, this like background on, you know, your identity or condition or whatever. Uh, when in reverse, if you ask like, when did you know you were straight? Like they'd answer, (laughs) but that's not a question they've ever had to think about. So do you find that that's the case with HIV where people feel like they deserve knowledge or is it a little bit different because it's, you know, I don't like in casual interactions. I don't think people like make out like they deserve info. There, people. Some people are more bold with their curiosity than others, mm-hmm. um, which doesn't bother me either way. I think where like the concept of obligation or entitlement. You know, I think the concept of entitlement comes up with people that you're involved with, partners, sexual mm-hmm. partners, um, is usually where that comes up. And I haven't really, you know, there's. There's definitely, at least in my head, a conversation about this with people who live with HIV who manage it like I do to an undetectable level. You know, mm-hmm. like I've been undetectable for a long time where it starts to feel like it, you know, you, you start to wonder how much you owe an explanation because being undetectable is being, it means you can't transmit, you know, undetectable is untransmissible. And so there's um, a part of you that, you know, when I first had HIV, I felt like I had to die, I could disclose it to everybody. Right. And partly because, like, we should also probably be very clear, like, I disclose it all the time that I have to because it's still state law in most places. It's still a felony not to disclose HIV in encounters, which is a really, like, stupid law that's incredibly antiquated. Mm-hmm. And also, that's one of those, it's one of those hangover mechanisms of the state that continues to perpetuate HIV as a problem that people perceive it to be that doesn't correspond to actually living with it. So um, I disclose it because I have to. There's definitely a conversation that should be had to be delicate with all the words that I'm using in that situation about what people are owed, what obligations someone has whenever they don't pose any fundamental medical risk to anybody. You know, it's not like people are ever like, 
disclosing their history of gonorrhea, right? Because functionally, if you think about it, like knowing someone's like history of like exposure to gonorrhea, like I, you know, like I'm, I'm, I can talk about HIV. I can comfortably say like I've several times had gonorrhea and that would probably be more important for someone who's like engaging me to know because it's like a pattern of like experience yeah. and exposure. So if they're trying to like mitigate their risk, risk and exposure, yeah. knowing my history of something like that would be like maybe potentially more meaningful, but when you say that, I'm sure there's someone who's listening who's like, well, you're not entitled to that information. That's my medical history. Like whenever we're just like hooking yeah. up or cruising and it's a valid point and I'm not, and I wouldn't say that they're necessarily wrong. And, you know, I'm just saying it's one of those things where there's a definite question about like what people are entitled to and owed, but those are the only situations to get back to your question. It's only those situations <laughs> where I really feel like people have a sense of entitlement about knowing about your, your HIV. Yeah. Status. And you bring up an excellent point, which I didn't even have in my list, which is, yeah, disclosing, well, I'll ask this first question and then that'll bring me to the second. So I like to talk about uh, language and like a vocabulary with a lot of different issues because um, I find changing how we talk about things is the easiest step towards whether it's lessening stigma or advancing knowledge surrounding something. Um, and so when I first came to Howard Brown, we have a style guide related to a lot of issues. Um, but the first thing I noticed was like, we don't say HIV positive people, we say people living with HIV. Um, because like I said before we started recording or maybe it was while we were recording, um, we don't like to reduce people to a diagnosis. Um, so do you have other <laughs> language that you prefer people use when talking about HIV that you're like, this makes a better way to to refer to this or to, to talk about it that, you know, feels better for everybody or feels better for other people in the community, even if it doesn't necessarily, um, you know, offend you? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, my personal preference, you know, I mean, everyone's entitled to their own preferences with how people speak to them about things that matter to them, yeah. right? So that's just like worth acknowledging from the jump. For sure. For me, I worry less about the words people use and more about the posture that they come to approach me with. You know, mm -hmm. like I'm worried more about like what they're, if they have like malicious intent with this information and they're trying gotcha. to make me feel shitty and they're trying to like find some way to, if they're only trying to arm themselves with information to use against me, you know, like in oh, some yeah. bizarre way, or if they just like are trying to make me feel bad or they're trying to talk about it in a way that's full of stigma and judgment then like then i you know i care even less about the words they're using and more about just like stop you yeah. know yeah 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 but um so like you know hiv positive personally with hiv i think it's i think it makes more sense to talk about a person living with hiv because it allows you to talk about the nuances the mm -hmm. multiple dimensions of, of living with um hiv as a chronic illness but it doesn't bother me if someone calls me HIV positive. I think sometimes even I call myself HIV positive, you know, yeah. like when I'm not thinking about it. What matters more to me is how people are approaching a conversation. Excellent you know? point. Excellent point. So that leads me into my second question because I didn't want to, you know, say the wrong things. But um, yeah, the, the, the point that you brought up originally about disclosing to your partner uh, about your status, like it is that antiquated thought of like, yeah, the, I com had completely blanked that there are like mandated disclosure laws in a lot of states that were, uh, like you said, a, a holdover from the 70s of like trying to stem the spread at any point uh, or, you know, uh, at any cost, I should say. Um, and obviously, like we have learned with almost everything, uh, if the government tries to put laws into effect to... Um, you know, enforce some kind of behavior usually does the opposite. Um, right. So that's, that's I guess, a, um, a, a, a policy and activism point that we can tie to this um, to, to be sure that when you're voting, you're voting people into office that are aware of all of this stuff. But um, <laughs> yeah, I... 
do you do you find and you don't have to be too forthcoming about you know sexual habits or anything but do you do you find if you're on a space like grinder or something like that that there's still a lot of misinformation regarding um you know undetectable and transmissible and 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 all of those things it's not predominant that's for sure but it exists without question okay. like i think the only places this is the tragedy of the okay that's dramatic this <laughs> is the, the the irony that i think most people assuming like an audience of queer people listening to this will maybe be surprised by is that most of the people who are like heteronormative, you know, who like aren't queer folk have the least visceral or loud reaction. It is the queer people on sex apps that if I ever have a negative experience with someone finding out of HIV, it's that's where it happens. Mm. That is more or less the only place that I actually run into. Like that makes me feel shitty about having it because there are people who explicitly will just like, nope, you're positive. They, you know, like, and I'm like, I also, like, in those situations, like, you know, I don't really feel like educating you right now. Yeah. You know? Like, That's I'm not... the other thing. Like, how do you protect your headspace and energy to just be like, I don't want to talk you through this. That's not the time or place. I'm not yeah. on this app to be, I'm not on this app to be an right. activist right now. And right. like, no one, you know, like, everyone has to decide where their activism comes into play and, like, how much is, like, you know, any ha- action they take is also a possible form for activism. But mm-hmm. um, people have, you know, like, they have blanket you know, they're just like, I'm not going to hook up with anyone who's HIV positive. You get people who, um, like don't quite understand, but are interested in learning more. And those are nice people. Then you know, like, there are sometimes experiences that are like, you know, I had this experience recently. I don't know why I'm being so like forthright about this, You can, but, oh no, I mean, I'm, I'm going to be anyway, you can keep it or leave, you can no. take it or leave it. But, um, I did have a person that I met on a met that I was talking to on an app recently who had just been diagnosed with HIV and, um, I don't want to get into my diagnosis story too much or the details of it, but had a similar experience to mine, which was unpleasant and related to some unfaithfulness with a partner. Mm. And um, they were just really, I mean, like I think maybe two weeks before. And there's a period for a while. I mean, it's different for everybody, but it can be any, you know, it can be like six months to a year that you don't get to an undetectable level after seroconversion. So Mm -hmm. seroconversion, like what we talked on earlier, the viral load skyrockets like really fast, you know, and then it comes down after a few weeks, even though it doesn't go away. Yeah. So they were had still like a really high viral load. And I'm you know saying all this because it was what sometimes is nice about having HIV is you can't get it twice. And so there was, it was, it, there was this moment where I realized like, Oh, like this person's really struggling. They're really unwell. They're going through a lot. They just want some physical contact. And like, I understand that. And like, it's not my obligation to like help them work through what role sex plays in their coping mechanisms and things like that. You know, like whatever the situation right, is, you're not there to therapize them. Right. And whatever the situation is, they just, want someone they just like need some compassionate experience right now you know and this is like a random moment where having hiv is actually super helpful Mm -hmm. because i'm the only person that they're not dangerous to you know like they can't give me hiv again so it's a situation that can sometimes create you know like opportunities to be a little bit more compassionate a little bit more connected to people i love i love that story and it to put it into words or like situations that like straights might understand uh (laughs) that like Okay, think back to COVID when everybody was in their own bubble and you could literally only be physically intimate with either somebody that lived in your house, uh, family in terms of like hugging or being close to them. Um, But, you know, it was this extraordinary risk to be or be around anybody else. And you can, people still remember that like, oh, I haven't hugged somebody in so long. Um, And if if you felt that type of way with just simply a hug, imagine 
you know, not having that or being prohibited from that kind of contact for, from, you know, everything beyond that. And so I can imagine that if you're in that scenario and it's, you know, taking a while to get to undetectable and you're also dealing with all your own internal feelings about it, how meaningful just having intimate contact with somebody might be. So that, that, that makes sense. And that's cool that you were able to have that experience and connect with that. But unfortunately, the part you said about the people being most like gross about, you know, reacting to, to your status is queer people, which I mean, the phenomenon of internalized homophobia and, you know, internalized um, I don't know. Why do you, why do you think that is? Just misunderstanding. It's just, you know, like anything in this world, when people are mean about something, it's rooted in fear. Mm-hmm. It's some fear and help. But up. don't you think that as members of the queer community that they ought of especially more than straight people have had and should know more, not be misinformed. Like if, if, if they're queer, the odds of somebody around them either, you know, living with HIV or, or, you know, other conditions related to, to healthcare that they should at least be able to approach the conversation with compassion and not fear. Like, I think everyone should be able to approach the, you know, like, <laughs> well, yeah, queer, yeah. But, but you would think it. for sure queer people would be able to do it. Yeah. You would think, you know, this is one of those moments where I hear my therapist saying like, should isn't a word that's going to help us here. You know, mm-hmm. like the reality is like, yeah, it would be productive for everyone involved because there are, are like, there are segments of the queer community that this is common in, you know, and um, uh, we all know what, the, like, we can all, like, pick out some of the, like, ways that this, the permutations of this perspective and this, like, lack of insight into the actual experience of HIV and who we've met that we see that in. Um, like, yeah, like, should they? Yeah, they should. We should all be compassionate. We should all be educated. We should all not speak from places of fear when we don't know what we're talking about. Or the problem is, is, is people in these situations don't think that they don't know what they're talking about. They mm-hmm. think that they are informed. They don't know what they don't know. Right. They think that they're informed. They think that their perspective is predicated upon like an under a clear-eyed understanding uh, of the situation. The problem is, is it's not clear-eyed. It's yeah. you know, it's rooted in a history of misinformation about HIV that goes back to you know the mid to late '80s before people you know when people this is you know you see it in like tv shows and sometimes they get the timeline of it wrong but you know there were there was a it, it took us 18 months before it starts showing up in san francisco at the end of 79 until about the mid of 81 that they had a clear sense of the like transmission networks you know yeah. so it didn't it didn't take as long as people perceive it to but like it was still nonetheless like not clear 100 percent like what all the vectors were mm-hmm. and then that's just within the medical community so yeah. like it took a while for all of that to be clear to people so i you know i don't know i look at it like this which is like it's not their fault it's really annoying i think that we need to do a better job as a society talking about hiv Mm -hmm. like we have to do better job as a society about talking about any communicable disease you know covid is a consequence of like us not speaking about infectious disease very properly in this world and having practices around it that statement yeah hiv is the same way covid is the greatest litmus test we have for how we talk about communicable diseases because there was all those things that you know uh the the medical community and maybe the queer community experience with hiv of like like pointing fingers and and kind of like you know figuring out how it spreads and then also learning how to talk about it and in a way that's helpful and not like shame-based um also you know the the community our communities as a whole experience with COVID and then kind of again with monkeypox because right. for for a lot of people, monkeypox was the first 
at least for me, um, the first like outbreak of anything that I was scared about, um, yeah. because me, you know, the pro- the timeline of me like coming out and being sexually active, HIV has you know established care plans, and I was educated in that like, you know, yes, not optimal, but you can very you know easily manage it, and, and it's well understood. Um, but you know, when something like monkeypox comes around, that was a lot of messaging we had to do here at Howard Brown, where it's like pointing fingers at people's lifestyles and habits and, and not educating yourself does not help. Um, like it was around market days and people were having a lot of discussions about, you know, being smart or, you know, endangering the community or putting bad labels on the community and, and things like that. And I don't know. I just think it's, it's an excellent, uh, point to think about of how we talk about these things, um, has real implications for, not only the health outcomes of people living with HIV, but other conditions that might uh, spread in a similar way. For sure. I probably articulated that poorly, but... No, you um, right. Yeah, yeah, that, that's just super interesting to me. Um, has your perception of HIV either as a condition or as it relates to your life, has it changed at all since you were diagnosed to now? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, it's filled with much more nuance now. And I understood, I, I, you know, I had an understanding of it in a historical sense before, but now it's something that I live with and and I talk about a lot um, and I speak about a lot. And um, as a consequence of that, there are definitely ways that, um, I also just lost my train of thought. Oh, you're fine. Um, what was the question again? Uh, has your perception <laughs> of it changed from then to now? Yeah, you know, I mean, part of what, yeah, so my perception of HIV has changed a lot because you don't get to speak about it with people when you don't have it in the same way. And people don't come to you with the same curiosities. They don't come to you with the same perspective. And I also became a lot more personally invested in understanding, you know, so I had, like like I said, I was, um, a lot of the research I did as an undergrad and in grad school was rooted in HIV. But what started to matter to me was more personal, you know, like getting the history right like really right looking at cold heart in the face and understanding the actual like vicissitudes of how hiv starts to become sorry the vicissitudes sorry just like vicissitudes (laughs) come on ap english so just like the different consequences of hiv merging onto the um the scene in america and like understanding that because what like what matters to me now as a person living with this is that these the the bullshit that we have to deal with which is the misaligned narratives that people have it is the misaligned historical perspectives people have Mm -hmm. which are the causes of people being cruel about hiv and hiv positive folks Mm -hmm. and hiv positivity and what that means for partnerships like all that is a consequence of um fear ignorance misunderstanding and so while that always mattered to me and uh you know as a person doing research and writing about things and who wanted to clear up the narrative um my relationship is much more personal now you know Mm -hmm. so my motivation is different what i'm looking for is different you know like sometimes i want to know about the there's a like less of a generalization you're willing to make when it affects you like this because what really matters you recognize is that like the generalizations have been cut and cast for the past 30 years so you start to be much more interested in the specific experiences that different people in history had you want to know about different doctors who are doing different things you want to know about like Robert Gallo and uh, like what his motivations were at the NIH and why they ran up against the CDC these things matter in ways that like 
were different from before because you recognize that it's in these like tiny little what seem like benign moments and like a story being told are actually like the places that the big openings like emerge yeah that create all these ignorances and this mis- yeah. these misunderstandings yeah you know the virus you you listed a few people in organizations and events um if which we don't have to get into no but, i know. i wasn't trying to but if somebody wants to Either within living with HIV or 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 not, uh, if somebody wants to to do that research and to learn about the actual timeline and actual events and things that really impact how we view it today, uh, off the top of your head, do you know of, of books or resources that people could look into that might help with that? Yeah, I mean, so. I'll, I want to preface it before I start saying things in case people hear a title and then like stop listening and go research. And I want to preface it with there's not a perfect, like there is not a perfect that I found. And if someone has mm-hmm. like a perfect history, they can. Um, I think like one of the like staple pieces of literature in the canon is in the band played on. It's a pretty like thorough account that's like by a journalist from the Washington Post whose name is for the life of me. I can't remember right now. It's one of those moments where it's I'll Google for that. the second I'm not, not on this. The second you say it, I'm going to be like, it's going to like, you right. oh, yes. Um, As it obvious. is Roger. Uh, oh wait, a film or a book? The book. The, oh, there is book, a film. Um, San Francisco yeah. Chronicle. Randy Schultz. Randy Schultz. Yeah. So okay. he's at San Francisco Chronicle at the time. Um, it's it's a, you know there's there are always going to be flaws. Mm-hmm. You know even with journalists who are doing the best job they can and are doing a good job at that through biases. There's still thing, you know, there's still things that with the blessing of hindsight you're like you weren't paying attention to this thing that was also oh, unfolding. Yeah. But as far as like an account of here's like an account of like the week by month by year timeline of what was known by whom and what the consequences of that knowledge weren't was going on. It's a really thorough like account of the first seven years of the pandemic. Okay. Yeah. So we recommend in the band played on to kind of um, be a primer, obviously. Uh, Yeah. It's an interesting thing because, you know, in the advent of the internet, we can tell a lot of those things, like who knew what, when, and when the first tweet about XYZ came out and all of that <laughs> stuff. Um, but with with something as as large as HIV and also during the 70s, yeah, there's not uh, a comprehensive, you know, thorough investigation into things. And there's things that do a really great job, but obviously there's no way to have every person's experience included and, and all the different, you know, across the nation, across the world, how that all came yeah. together. So. It's One of the downsides statement. with that, for instance, and this is maybe another way to talk about living with HIV and some people's like stigma, of, you know, especially if we're talking about communicable diseases. Like one of the things that book gets wrong is uh, like Randy Schultz's preoccupation with the patient zero, um, which oh. is a relatively recently debunked history. And I also like I'm so terrible with names. I like I cannot think of the person who was always kind of this pinned on. It was a, um, a flight attendant. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, from, I want to say Montreal. Um, and. There was this preoccupation in the early days. Randy Schultz is a person who's um, guilty of this. This is why it's important to also know that even if that, you know, even though in the band played on is a good history, it's also a flawed history because of people's biases that they don't even know they're aware of. But he was preoccupied with finding a patient zero, for instance. And that's like a big part of the book is like focusing on this like one person is like, is like potentially like the singular vector of HIV, which is yeah. just an impossibility. It's like a... And it's also not productive. It doesn't get us... In, right, yeah, yeah. Once it's in community, it's in community. You yeah. know, like the pro, like at that point, the important thing is just to know like, is just to like cut off the vectors where you can feasibly do it. Right. And, um, you know, and like you can like whatever there's... We don't have to get into the history of all of it, but you know, like... Living with HIV, people always want to point to a singular cause. And this is why 
this is the root of animosity and acrimony towards the queer community in the 80s is that the rest of the world was just like mad essentially about what they perceived to be the nexus point of all this which it wasn't the queer community mm -hmm. alone that like caused this to proliferate you know there's lots of causes that make it allow it to proliferate you know the Reagan administration's disinvestment in medical resources mm -hmm. that like you know like their preoccupation with like budget reduction and like forcing the CDC in the same way they did during COVID to operate with not enough funding and have to make tough choices and being ill prepared from like an infrastructural standpoint without having all the things that they needed and just you know which is all to get back to like the important thing is not necessarily like even knowing the who and like that immediate when but like what now and how mm. you know to curtail this yeah. because trying to place blame you know like nine times like placing blame just doesn't get you anywhere yeah like at the end of the day when yeah. you're trying to move forward and live with this i gotta live a whole life with this you know i gotta right. live like potentially six seven decades with this i'm gonna spend that whole time preoccupied with like the point of infection this is not worth any of it you yeah know? it's not it's not productive to look backwards at that uh and to to live your life based on yeah yeah with that antiquated sense of sense of shame um i googled the the so-called patient zero that people had pinned on for a while it was a flight attendant out of montreal or no quebec quebec city quebec city um oh sorry quebec i'm not you know whatever um his name was yeah uh, i'm not gonna butcher gaten dugas g-a-e yeah the e with the dots above it uh t-a-n dugas d-u-g-a-s uh in case you're interested in researching but um to, and obviously, monkeypox is not the same uh, in terms of long-term implications, so I don't like drawing parallels between it. But for, like I said, for a lot of people, that was like the first thing or maybe the only thing like people might experience in their lifetime that compares to that like sense of, of a community trying to deal with things. Um, and I, when we did one of our two episodes on it with Dr. Nuhazra, he said the same thing where, um, you know, pointing fingers and, and placing blame on certain communities uh, because a lot of people did the same with monkeypox with the gay community. Like, why 100%. is it spreading just within the gay community? It's like, well, when you look at, like, closed uh, sexual networks, like uh, the gay community, you know, our our chance of, because it's, it's smaller, our options of partners is more limited, so it seems like it's spreading quicker versus a straight community, your options are, are larger. So just by uh, by virtue of, of having a smaller pool of sexual partners, excuse me, sexual partners, it's going to spread faster. And that's also true for things like military bases and nursing homes and other closed sexual communities. Um, they just always have somebody that's responsible for them. You know, if it's a, a university, there, you know, is somebody in charge of healthcare for the university. But for, you know, the gays, there's not like, <laughs> there's not a, a health console for the gays necessarily. So uh, I don't know, it's just an interesting... Uh, anecdote as it relates to how people interpret community spread and, and amongst what communities particularly. For um, sure. And it also, it, and this is this is why it matters, because when you look at what happened with monkeypox, it wasn't just people outside the gay community that were like looking for someone to blame. It was people within the gay community who mm -hmm. started pointing fingers at who was yeah. the problem, you know? Because they want to absolve themselves of it too. They want to, and they're, like, and they're afraid. And yeah. this is why, it, this is why to me, it is important to talk about both like the experience of living with HIV and the histories, because we clearly haven't learned the most important lessons from it, right? Yeah. Like what, one of the most important lessons to take from HIV and what actually happened from a historical standpoint is understanding how quickly the gay community became very divided, mm. like in the earliest days, you know, like Larry Kramer is always kind of held up as like a person who like was flying in the face of the general sentiment of the gay men's health crisis in New York City because he had very different, you know, he was 
pointing the blame not just at people who are currently in charge, like in the city. He wasn't just pointing his finger at Ed Koch and like the New York City like public health department. He was also talking about like the gay club owners who were like being told by medical like professionals like you're like these bathhouses are sites of incredible mm. like. We don't understand what's going on and we can we can we keep tracing it back to this place and the people who are owning bathhouses were like well i'm not gonna lose revenue like yeah. and i'm you know i kept open places that were being identified by public health officials as like these sites of transmission and so like there's what we should have taken from hiv as a community is that it doesn't matter who's at fault from the start what we have to do is figure out how to like protect all of ourselves and take care of each other yeah the larger you know? institutions that have the power to facilitate you know, either either education or, you know, mitigation or whatever it may be. Um, and just it, support. Yeah, yeah, and, and just support. Like, in, institutions are much better at that than, like, placing the blame or, you know, the, the onus on an individual. Right. Um, that's by far less effective. So I think that's a great sentiment, too. So we know and we talk a lot about how um, living with HIV is manageable um, and you get down to undetectable and all those things what does to like demystify it what is your day-to-day medical care routine for hiv look like um it's really simple and will probably get even simpler as time goes on mm-hmm. not that they have those six month injections but i wake up and i take i take a pill i take tarvi and that, that is literally the extent of it. Every six months I go in for blood tests to see what my levels look like, just to ensure that, yeah. you know, cause there's always the risk that you, you know, you could be maybe like start to develop a resistance to the medication and they like, like to keep on top of that. But, um, so not really common at all. Mm-hmm. And like, not likely to happen in yeah, any yeah, way that's, that's a, it's a like very a, rare thing it, that like it doesn't like, have it's one of those things where it's like it doesn't or happen, like your body <laughs> randomly develops a different like autoimmune thing or like right yeah, it would, that it would be on par with like a random but day to day i take a pill it's really simple okay you know it's no different than managing my depression at the end of the day honestly you know in some cases it might be simpler like yeah no oh my god it's much simpler yeah. the depression comes with like all sorts of other ancillary Ooh, yeah. supports that like like therapy and all kinds I, of things. I feel you on that one um <laughs> Okay, yeah, I just wanted to put that out there because some people aren't aware of that. And to be clear, that's, in terms of blood work, simpler than people that are on PrEP. And uh, because PrEP, you have to be screened every three months. Right. Um, and so, and, and in similar cases, they're working to make PrEP an injectable and be able to manage that better. But it's, it's the exact same care plan. So yeah. I just, I know you're like, well, yeah, it's a pretty easy question, but I just wanted to put that out there because people... If they don't have somebody in their life that's, you know, living with HIV or they don't care enough or haven't thought to, to look into what it, the care plan looks like, that's it. They have misguided. A pill a day. Yeah. Um, you, you, I'll kind of wrap these last three questions into kind of one um, mega question, which is uh, at the end of every episode, I like to ask my guests, you know, what do you want people to take away from this episode? Uh, and I'll preface, like, I'll uh, elaborate with a few follow-up questions. So maybe um, what strides you hope society makes regarding uh, HIV, either in diagnosing, treatment, stigma, how we talk about it, um, or, like I said, what is one thing you want listeners to take out of the episode, or what advice would you give to somebody who's recently diagnosed? You can uh, answer any of those three <laughs> that you like. It doesn't have to be all three. Um, but just, yeah, t- to summarize things, how do you how do you want people to walk away from this episode? Well, um, first and foremost, when I think about what I want for, like, all of us in regards to HIV is kind of what we just ended on at the other, one of the other questions, which is 
we need better healthcare infrastructure mm-hmm. in this country. The reason that HIV continues to run rampant and continues to like be a problem that in some parts of the United States exceeds other places where the general perception is that HIV is uncontrolled um, is because there are places in America that have terrible healthcare access, terrible healthcare coverage. There is just not, the problem with HIV, like fundamentally the problem with HIV, the problem with COVID, the problem with monkeypox was a failure of our healthcare system to have the adequate resources and as a society for us to have a, a culture of health and, you know, care. Yeah. I don't why I separated those words, <laughs> but this is like not a, we just, yeah. as a society, we just need, and it's not, to me, this is one of those things where like, I am so, one thing I want people to take away from this episode is like not having a stigma is like truly like not, the success to me is not society not having stigma on HIV. Like I could, I couldn't care less about people's stigma at the end of the day. What matters is that this is like, people are still being infected with Mm. this at like alarming rates. Um, This is like a six year old statistic, but like if you are a person of color, like a, like a person of, if you're a black man who has sex with men, you are like one in two black men who have sex with men are going to get HIV in their lifetime Mm. in this day and age in 2022. When we have, all the resources we can eradicate this we have every we have every we have we have more to combat hiv the only thing we don't have to combat hiv is a vaccine Mm -hmm. but like we have everything we need to eradicate hiv and aids from this planet without question you know these vision 2030 like you know like plans that like almost every state the country has where the idea is that by 2030 we have no more HIV infections is so attainable. Mm. It just, and it does not come down at the end of the day. It doesn't come down largely. You cannot blame it on people's perceptions, Mm. you know, like there is definitely an education standpoint. There's definitely like a social, you know, like stigma standpoint that has to be addressed. But to me, like the ground level, the most important thing is just getting resources into people's hands, you know, making it simple and easy and encouraged that people have regular checkups, that they're always getting tested every three months, that people have access to like pre-exposure prophylactics or prep, you know, like any way that we can infrastructurally protect people like, and like give them care. And that way when they do get infected, like having immediate access to care, like I was fortunate and privileged enough to have so that way you can get your viral load down and reasonable, you know, like, yeah, these are the things that matter. Yeah. Stigma comes after that. I love that sentiment. And it, it, I think, uh, you know, the education and the stigma might not, you know, pushing education for the reduction of stigma might not be so much as to, you know, make people's experiences better that are living with HIV, but to build popular support for uh, government officials that will get those resources and will build up medical infrastructure. Because as we've unfortunately figured out, uh, a lot of government operates based off what is the talking points, what is popular support there for. Um, And so if this issue isn't top of mind for people, it'll probably unfortunately stay that way uh, in regards to what elected officials are doing in response to this. Um, So yeah, I, I completely get that. Like the only way that like tangible way to get to zero, which I think is the official like, tagline that a lot of people use um is yeah just to have those resources there and just make it a de facto like doesn't matter what your orientation is where you're at in life like you should at least get screened every so often whenever that time frame looks like i'm not medical professional but the notion that we have everything that we need to end this is a great ribbon on on this episode or bow i guess um (laughs) yeah because we have it we just have to do it i guess and the time is prime you know like it, it is it obviously 
COVID, monkeypox, these, like, this is still top of mind for people. Yeah. You know, this infectious disease, epidemiology in general is not a new topic right now. No. And so. it's really, I mean, like, with the COVID pandemic still like, going on, this is something that, like, health, like, public officials, representatives are really, they're listening right now. So if there ever is a time when we're going to address some of these fundamental systemic problems that continue to perpetuate these diseases this is the moment that we have this big opportunity one last baby question and then we're done i swear but this just popped <laughs> okay. up going watching society go through monkeypox and covid as somebody who has you know an experience with an epidemic what did you have any emotions related to like all of these people for the first time dealing with you know either fear of of a disease or the feelings that come along with being diagnosed with a disease. Um, what did you feel watching people go through that? If anything, um, you know, the thing is, and I was reminded how great, you know, like I was reminded how grateful I should be that I was born when I was born and I got HIV when I got HIV because it was mm. at a time when we had what we needed to care for it and make it not a thing that's going to kill me, gotcha. you know? And when I was watching COVID and unfold and all that happening, and I was like, obviously thinking about the, my relationship to a, a past pandemic HIV, mm. yeah. you start to realize what makes this terrifying right now is we don't know anything and we don't have what we need to treat and take care of this. And that's really disconcerting, you know? Yeah. And even with something that's not, as deadly once you contract it as HIV, you know, yeah. you look at it and it, like, you know, I don't know, my honest immediate reaction was just like gratitude, like on timing, you know, okay. just like one of those, like, this is like a funny happenstance of history that I was alive when I was alive and, and have the yeah. blessing of not being threatened by this in the same way. Yeah. Once I have it, you know, I think that's a, a super interesting point of view because, because a lot of people did compare early monkeypox and early COVID to, uh, HIV when you know there's all this fear mongering and people don't know how it spreads and people doing everything in their power to secure whether it's a vaccine or a treatment or whatever um, very similar but okay I, I will wrap it up the running joke <laughs> on every episode is thanks for coming I'll have to have you back um, and I don't <laughs> say that disingenuously at all um, I truly say it to every guest because that is almost universally the case where there's so much to talk about and I end up rambling and uh, could definitely do with the second episode. But um, till that time comes, Kevin, thank you so much for giving your time and your expertise and your knowledge uh, and your care uh, about sharing your experience and everything. So thank you. Yeah, no problem. And that has been our episode with Kevin Bierman regarding their, their experience living with HIV. If you're interested in more resources regarding HIV AIDS care, you can go to www.howardbrown.org for more information. Thanks for listening.